You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, just want to say to you, it does my heart so good to see uh, James and Wanda and Deb and Curtis and Louise. Um, God has just been so faithful, um, and we have missed uh, you all so much, um, and just glad that you are here this morning. And can we just give God thanksgiving this morning for what he's done in their life to bring healing? Amen. Just thankful for that. Had the opportunity to visit with them this week, and um, God's just good. <laughs> you missed us too, man. We're we're just glad that you're here this morning, and it's good to be together, isn't it? And so that's really the theme of First Corinthians: is togetherness from the negative angle. Now, uh, Paul is dealing with division or lack of togetherness in the local church, and and this is something that uh, not only requires specific um, dealing with from God's Word, but on occasion it needs some maintenance ministry, something that we must continue to maintain and strive for, and that is unity. The message uh, series is entitled, A House Divided, but God's Word calls us to unity just to remind you of a couple of verses before we dive into 1 Corinthians again this morning. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that we have that was accomplished in Christ. And because of that, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Paul calls us again and again to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the consistent biblical theme throughout the New Testament and Old Testament alike. We are united to Christ and therefore we must be in unity together with others who have also been united to Christ. Well, Corinth is the antithesis of that unity. And so Paul writes a letter to the church and he appeals to them that they would all agree together. It's the call of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. The same call that is to us this morning. That agreement can't happen just because we try to muster it up. Uh, being in unity does not happen whenever the church relies on the flesh. Being in unity only happens whenever the church is relying on the power of the gospel. We saw that oh so clearly last week. 
Unity in the church is supernatural. It's an act of God where God destroys the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of the age, and he chooses to save some out of this world. And as a result of our unity with Christ, we have union together. The church is divided here at Corinth. What is it that was dividing them? Well, there's a number of issues, and we're going to get to those as we walk through this letter. But at the very heart of it all is this issue of pride. It's the issue of pride. And Paul reminds them that God did not choose them because of their position or their status. God did not choose them because of anything good in them. And he wants to call them again to remember the circumstances surrounding their calling. Maybe as we think about this this morning, consider your calling. You're here this morning and it would be the same thing to us. Where were you when God Saved you. Who were you? What condition was your life in? What position or status did you have? What was in you that was desirable that God should save you? I want you to see this morning from this passage of Scripture. That God's choice to save you and God's choice to save me was an unlikely choice. An unlikely choice. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we look together at verse 26 and following. An unlikely choice. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that. No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we pray today that that would be true Here in this room, among this people, among this church body, that those who among us boast, that we would boast in the Lord. Boast in Him alone. Father, would you empty us of pride? Would you empty us of the hunger for position, for the need to be right? For the desire to be best over all others. And would you humble us, Father, at the foot of the cross. And remind us that there is nothing good in us that we should be chosen. But that everything that is good is found in you. 
And our lives in Christ are a result of your grace and your grace alone. May the result of that this morning overflow into the way that we treat, the way that we view one another. May you be glorified as your church is unified. And Lord, we do pray that as the gospel is heard this morning in every heart, that those who do not yet know Jesus would be saved today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Consider your call. Remember there were a couple of things that were happening here at the church at Corinth. One was that they were divided over some particular issues. Now, I I know we don't fight over anything here. We don't know what it's like to be divided over some things, but the church at Corinth did. They knew exactly what it was like, and they had even begun to form camps over who was right and who was wrong and who was going to support what cause and who was not going to support what cause. And they had the carpet color committee, and they had the pew committee, and they had the steeple committee. They had all these committees formed, and not one of them could agree. So they were divided over some issues. Those issues would certainly deserve some special treatment as we walk through the letter to the church at Corinth, and we're going to see some of those things come up. But the second thing was that they were not only battling over issues that led them ultimately to battle over position, to divide into camps and to argue for their case. They knew better than others. They needed the position more than others. Their status was higher than others. And that led to serious problems in the way that they treated one another. While they may have been right over whatever issue it was, they were completely wrong in the way that they were treating one another, in their attitude, in their words, and their actions. And so what Paul does is he aims to take that pride and bring it to, bring it to nothing, to completely shatter the pride of the church at Corinth. And so he's already reminded them That God did not choose the wisdom of the world to save them. That this infinitely wise, infinitely glorious and gracious gospel is the only reason they were saved. And it's not a message of human wisdom and it's not a message of human power. It's a message of the power of God that is at work in the cross of Christ. The only way the church has any real divine power at work among us is that we have been faithful to proclaim and to live by the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel. But he takes that, what is high and theological, and he brings it down to what is more specific and what is personal. And he says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Consider The word here is usually described a physical sight to consider, look at. But here it's more metaphorical. It's to call something to mind. And the the image is so forceful that it's as if you're calling something to mind, as if it's happening right before your mind's eye, as if you can see it taking place. And so he says to the church, Think about your calling, brothers, so intently and so specifically that it's as if it's happening right now again. Calling. 
does he mean by a call? You could consider your calling as a Christian. You could consider what it means to be a Christian. What it means to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You could consider Jesus' completed work on the cross and His resurrection. You could consider, as we sang this morning, about His return. All of those things. But this is not what Paul is calling the church to consider. He is as if he is having a one-on-one conversation with every believer at the church at Corinth. And he is saying, consider the moment that you trusted in Jesus. If this were the disciples, he would be saying something like, remember the time you were fishing? You were sailing there in the boat and there were no fish. And Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side and you caught all of these fish Do you remember the moment that Jesus said, come, leave your nets and follow me? If he's talking to some here at the church at Corinth, he might say, do you remember when you were serving and you were sinning in the temple of Aphrodite? Do you remember the moment that you heard the good news of Jesus Christ and you turned from that sin and trusted in Jesus? Do you remember that calling? This is what he's calling the church at Corinth to. It's what he's calling us to. What were the circumstances surrounding your call? Who were you? What status did you have? What did you have to offer? Why would God choose you? Well, Paul says, I can tell you what that was. Verse 26, he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So we'll unpack that more in just a moment. But these things point forward to what God and Christ has done. But for the moment, just think about what he's saying to the church at Corinth. There's nothing special about you. That God would have chosen you. He says, you weren't the most intellectual. You weren't wise according to worldly standards. You live in Corinth, by the way. A place where this is the center of Greek culture. Should be a place where the most learned in all of Greece are here in Corinth. And he says, oh, not you. You're not the smartest of the bunch. You're not the intellectually elite. You don't have a huge vocabulary. You can't explain all these detailed, deep concepts. You don't have the best grades. You're not the most educated. That's not why God chose you. He says you're not the most powerful or you could say influential. It's the idea of authority or position. You didn't have the best job. In fact, you didn't have any real position of authority. No one listened to your ideas. You weren't the quarterback Or the team captain. You weren't the one that everybody followed. And then he says you weren't of noble birth. In other words, you didn't have a high social status. You weren't born into the right family. You weren't a part of the in crowd. No one would have selected you as the most popular. The most likely to to succeed. In fact, Corinth, by worldly standards, you were actually 
the most unlikely in all of Corinth to be chosen by God. Now, that's not true across the board. There were at the church of Corinth those who did have some status. You'll remember Crispus, who was ruler of the synagogue, saw him at the beginning of chapter one. He was saved. Acts 18 tells us the story. But for the most part, these believers at Corinth were the ones who you wouldn't necessarily necessarily select for starting a movement. Wouldn't have been the choice leaders. It wouldn't have been the choice church. Listen to what Paul says in verse 27. But God chose. I love that. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So so Paul says... God chose nobodies. God chose nothings. God chose people who were insignificant and broken. He chose people who were needy and helpless. He chose people who had nothing to offer Him. And He offered them everything. He offered them the blood of His only Son who was all in all and He saved them and He said, I'm inviting you to be a part of My family and My kingdom though you were insignificant, now you are significant because you are found in the One who is the most exalted in all the earth. Jesus, the Son of the living God. And He took what was broken, what was rejected, what was shameful, what was helpless, what was in need of rescue, and He did just that. He rescued us. He redeemed us. And He restored us to His kingdom. That's the message of the Gospel. That God in choosing me and you made the unlikely choice. He he chose what no one else would in order to display to us and to the whole world the riches of His grace. Because you and I who were far from God, outcasts of the kingdom, rebels without a cause, you and I who had sinned against Him, He said, I'm going to give My Son for you. And God in His love for us sent His Son to die in our place. So church at Corinth, Southwide, worldly wisdom, power, popularity, None of those things gain anything in the kingdom of God. Our position, our status, has absolutely no bearing on the kingdom of God. My accomplishments, my abilities, my influence, they do not count for anything in the kingdom. If we are going to boast in anything, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus is all in all to us. He's everything. And so as a result, I I boast only in Him. Here's the point. God chose you. Not based on who you are, but He chose chose you in order that your life might boast in Him. God chose you in order that your life might boast in Him. 
That's huge. So many calls to Christ are based on all the things that Christ offers you or all of the things that Christ sees in you or all of the things that Christ can do for you. But the gospel is a call to lay all of that down and to come and be satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. The fact is the gospel's not ultimately about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. We don't measure anything by our own standards anymore as Christians. We measure everything by whether it exalts Jesus. The problem in the church at Corinth is they lost sight of that. They lost sight of being God's unlikely choice. Calvin put it this way. The Corinthians had no great standing in the world, although they were just proud all the same. This is the position that many in the church find themselves in. You might call this the poison of somebody-ism. I'm somebody in the kingdom. When in reality we make it all about ourselves. Despite a Calling and a status that can only boast in the Lord, we tend toward that. Boasting in ourselves. And that's what tripped up the church at Corinth. And it's liable to trip up any church who falls prey to pride and selfishness. That leads us to boast in our own status, our position, our accomplishments, our plans, our wisdom. You see, we, we're saved by grace and by grace alone and we realize that. But then we start making it all about us. And we boast in our accomplishments and our worth the kingdom of God is all about the worth of Christ think about the kind of people that God uses in his kingdom you could just survey the old and new testament and find the life of Joseph the one who was the weakest and the smallest of the brothers and yet God used him to rise above to the top And to lead the entire nation of Egypt and ultimately his brothers and his entire family. And what great things God did through Joseph. Or what about Moses? The one who stuttered. And yet he's supposed to speak for God. Let my people go. Standing before the greatest power of the land. They found him in a river. (laughs) It was unlikely that he even rised to any kind of leadership. And God orchestrates His life toward that end. Rahab, do you remember her? Rahab the harlot. Kids, ask your parents about that one later. But anyway, Rahab who had spent a life in complete opposite of what it meant to live for God. And yet we find her in the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus. David. Shepherd. Adulterer. But the man after God's own heart, Matthew, the tax collector whom the rest of the world rejected, the Samaritan woman, the one who is the outcast no one would even speak to, and yet she is used of the Lord to lead the entire village to Christ. The garrison demoniac who was abandoned to the shadows, no one would even go near him. And Christ goes, Paul, a murderer, Peter, a coward. I even think of that beggar at the gate called Beautiful who for his entire life sat at that gate. 
And when he came to know Jesus and Jesus healed him both physically and spiritually, he leapt for joy and hundreds were saved that day. God does not choose us because of who we are. God chooses us so that because of the power of the cross to transform even the unlikeliest of life, our lives might be a boast only to the Lord. This is the truth of the gospel at work, you see. If we're measuring our lives ultimately by God's holy and righteous standard rather than our own standard of status or honor, The fact is that none of us would stand up to the test. All of us come to the place where we are sinners against a holy God. And the fact is we have nothing to boast in in and of ourselves, even if we have the prestige and the position and the fame and the power and all of those things. None of that is anything to boast in a boast in, because when we stand before the Lord, we stand before him guilty, sinners separated from God, rebels without a cause. But God in Christ has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in His presence. And that's the reality. None of us can boast in the presence of the Lord, no matter how much we've gained. No human being can boast in the presence of God. Any of our boasting in God's presence is ultimately pride. Because of our sin. Self-help. To get away from that fails. Inspirational living. Fails. Recovery. Fails. The power of positive thinking. That fails. Do you know why? Because all of them have me at their center. And you at their center. You see, the gospel teaches us that Jesus is at the center. And the only way to find healing from our pride is to come to the place that we see Jesus as more exalted than we could ever be. And us as lowly underneath him and lifted up through the power of the gospel. This is why the gospel is good news. Because as we bring glory to Christ, he ultimately lifts us up and we find joy eternal in him. So Paul reminds of people who are determining their value through positive thinking, position, measuring strength and status. He reminds them of some gospel realities that they should look to instead. Gospel realities to measure their boasting with. Four of them, and they're all in verse 30. So here's kind of the flow of thought. What happens is, he says, that this calling should lead you to consider that you were nothing and that now Christ chose you in pure grace. And as a result, there's some things that God has Done. Verse 30 says, and because of him, you are in Christ. By the way, that's what it means to be a Christian. 
You find a a once sinful, rebellious life now hidden in Christ. Christ has become everything that God demands of us. He is the righteousness of God. He is the sin penalty for us. Everything that we needed, Christ becomes. And so we find ourselves in Christ. What does that look like? Well, he says, who became four things. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So these are the four measures. Number one, boast in the wisdom of God in Christ. If you're going to boast, it's okay to boast, by the way, it's in Christ. Not in yourself, in Christ. And if you're going to do it, you need to boast in the wisdom of God in Christ. How many of you have spent a whole lot of time trying to figure something out and finally got to the place where you go, I don't have any answers. Anybody ever been there? How many of you without a show of hands have been so hopeless in the midst of some difficulty that you go, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is in fact what it means to come to faith in Jesus. To come so much to the end of ourselves and our own ability to reason our way out and excuse our way out and come up with some sort of a solution, we finally come to the place in our lives where we realize there is no solution in me. I got no ability to fix the mess that I'm in. No ability to solve the problem. And we come to the place that we realize it's not God who created the problem and it's not the culture that created the problem. It's me who created the problem. My own sin has put me into the mess that I'm in. And unless somebody comes and helps me, I got no hope. And then to realize that God's plan to help me began Long before I was ever born. That the the mess that I'm in didn't take God by surprise. That I didn't throw a monkey wrench into God's plans. But His plan began long before creation. From eternity past, God in His wisdom chose to save sinners through the death of His only Son. The wisdom of God to know all things and to decree all things in order that I might be saved. It was the eternal plan of God for salvation. God doesn't do backup plans, church. He doesn't do plan B. Nothing we do takes God by surprise. He is sovereign. And so His eternal plan to save me I boast in that wisdom because all of the while I was running and every choice I've had to stray in the midst of it, God was still seated on his throne and was not taken by surprise. So the wisdom of God in Christ for salvation, but it goes beyond this wisdom of God that the church is experiencing goes beyond just conversion. It is the wisdom of God not only to save, but to sustain all the way to the end by His Word. We have the Word of the living God that is an enduring, 
never failing, never returning void word that pierces even to the joints and the marrow to the very depth of who we are and accomplishes everything that God pleases. It is an enduring wisdom and that wisdom leads us in Christian living. As we think about the things that we face every day, when we get to the end, when we couldn't see the end from the beginning and get to the end and can look back, we see how God was working the entire way. Joseph, again, sold into slavery by his brothers. The entire time of his suffering in slavery and imprisonment, The things that he was promised being taken away, the estrangement from his father, the abuse of his brothers, all of those things. One of us might be asking the question, God, why me? The end of the story, Genesis 50 and verse 20, we know that in the midst of the famine, Joseph was able to provide for his brothers because of the position he had and ultimately the entire nation of Israel coming into prosperity and the result Of what God was doing. And Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I don't know what you're going through today, but God is in his wisdom, ordering all things for the accomplishment of his will and praise God for the salvation of the lost. He's doing it every single day, boast in the wisdom of God in Christ. It's a perfect thought as we think about the division of the church, isn't it? Sometimes it seems as if whenever we get into conflict with one another that there are things that are unresolvable. We get into situations as a church family where we just look at this and we go, how do we get here? And we bear responsibility when we get into the place of division. But here's the reality. The same God who was wise last year and the year before and the year before that has an eternal wisdom that will that is wise now and will continue to be wise. And God is wisely leading his church. We boast in that wisdom that the plan of salvation is not has not failed and will not fail. We boast in that. Paul says, boast in the wisdom of Christ. Secondly, boast in the righteousness of God in Christ. Boast in the righteousness of God in Christ. Second Corinthians five and verse 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here, Paul says, righteousness we have in Christ because of being in him. I love the picture of Isaiah 61 verse 10. The Lord says through the prophet, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. This is the conclusion of all that God was going to do to ultimately judge Israel And Isaiah says at the end of that, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest and a beautiful head with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In other words, he takes 
the one who is a sinner, whose righteousness is as filthy rags, and he clothes us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It is not a good, righteous core that we began with. It was a human heart that was hard and sinful to the core. And Jesus plucks out the heart and clothes us in His perfect righteousness so that when God sees us, He sees righteousness. It's credited to our account. The prodigal son is a story we hear about often in God's Word. You remember the prodigal who ran from the father, squandered his inheritance, and ended up in pit with the pigs. I mean, what, what a life, right? Like eating slop with pigs. Some of us have been in the place where we're down and out and far from God. And that prodigal returned home desiring only to be the servant of his father, seeing the unlikely reality that his father would even call him a son. And when he comes home, his father does what? Puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and restores him and calls him his son. You see, we boast in the righteousness of God in Christ because He has clothed us. Though we are unlikely, He clothes us. And the beauty of this, now watch this, is that everyone in this room who names the name of Christ is clothed in the same perfect righteousness. One of the reasons... The church begins to divide is because of self-righteousness. We don't have any of that. You follow me? There's nothing in me and nothing in you that is better than anybody else. We all stand equally guilty before the cross but those who are in Christ stand equally forgiven at the cross. And because of Christ, we're seen as righteous. There's a humility about this. So we boast in the righteousness of God in Christ. Third, boast in the holiness of God in Christ. The holiness of God Paul uses the word hagiasmos here, which is hagias, the root word being holy. The word sanctification. Holiness is to sanctify or to set apart both morally and willfully on, in terms of a purpose. God sets us apart from unrighteousness and He's doing that continually. And He sets us apart for His purpose. It happens at the moment of salvation. When you and I are set free from sin and set apart for the glory of God and declared holy. But it does not end there. Because the Bible as Christians calls us to be holy as He is holy. Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Of course not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. Now, we're going to see this in some really specific ways as we walk through this letter. But you need to understand that sin divides the church and self-righteousness divides the church. Just as much as it divides the church for you to legalistically lord things over people and to demonstrate how holy and righteous you are, it equally divides the church for you to do the opposite, to live a life that is dishonoring to the Lord, that's rebellious against the Lord. Sin divides the church as quickly as self-righteousness does. And sadly, we, we find ourselves often in the position of one gutter or the other, living in self-righteousness or living in sin. And what we've been called to is to repent of sin and repent of self-righteousness and live holy lives covered under the righteous robe of Christ. It's the call. And when we do that, guess what happens in the church? We find ourselves in unity. Because it's not about me at all. It's about Christ. Sanctification brings healing. When the church is... Humble toward one another because we realize that each of us is one step away from failure. When the church is willing to confess sin to one another. In order that we might be cleansed. When the church repents. The way that we treat one another. And we offer. Forgiveness. The healing Happens. This is sanctification as Jesus is changing his church. There's one more. And that's the redemption of God in Christ. We must boast in the redemption of God in Christ. You need to know that you were more than broken before you came to Jesus. You'd you'd done more than made a few mistakes in your life. It was more than a mess. The very thing, namely sin, that was leading you into the mess, the Bible says that we're slaves to in our natural state. We we only go after sin as lost people. Going back to the story of Joseph later on, fast forward the scene. Here's the nation of Israel. They're enslaved to the nation of Egypt and they're having to be forced into manual labor and other things of mistreatment in order to to just prop up this ungodly, wicked system in Egypt. Four hundred years they're there. Nothing they could do to free themselves. And what happens? The stutterer walks in and says, let my people go. A redeemer comes, 
Can I tell you that one more perfect than Moses has come? The one whose name is Jesus and he's come to set us free from our sin. And we are in greater bondage to our sin than Israel could ever be in the nation of Egypt. It is eternal and unwavering. And unless Jesus sets us free, we'll never be free. But the Bible says the one whom the son sets free is free indeed. We have redemption in Christ. We have been rescued. Oh, how redemption heals the church. God has redeemed us not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And as we think about all that's happening among us on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, how much God is redeeming and buying back from what sin has enslaved. Every day. Oh, it's not easy to to confess and ask for forgiveness. Oh, it's not easy to to be real about who you are. But what what amazing work of redemption God is doing to set you free when it happens. Can't tell you the number of times that I knew God was leading me to do something specific in the area of obedience. And my heart held me captive until I obeyed Christ. And when I obeyed Christ, oh, the freedom that came. As a follower of Jesus. We're such a broken people. But praise God, He is redeeming us. And do you know where that redemption lands? He will not fail to lead us into the promised rest. One day, every single thing that sin has broken, Jesus will have bought back. Every single thing that was destroyed, He will restore. And He will be the one standing in the end receiving the glory and not us. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we will lay our crowns down at His feet and we will sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God who was slain for us. We will sing worthy to Christ. This will be our worship. The only question is, will that be our worship on this side of eternity? Will the church be a reflection of Christ's redemption now? And so Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're here this morning... And you are the proud. You know that God convicting your heart this morning. You know that you have been self-righteous. That your pride has led to the mistreatment of those in your church family. You need to be humbled this morning. My prayer for you is that God would do that. In these moments, as we open this altar in a few moments, that you would come and bow your face before a holy God. And the Bible says that God exalts the humble. And the pride won't be able to stand in his presence. So this morning, will you humble yourself before the Lord? To the defeated in this room. Who live under the constant shadow of mistakes and failure, I want you to hear this morning that in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that and whatever background you come from, that God has chosen the foolishness and the weak in order to exalt His grace. And this morning, whatever that is, He can redeem you from it. 
You'll just trust him with it today. If you'll turn from it and trust in Christ, he will restore and redeem. To those whom the culture has marginalized and perhaps even those whom the church has marginalized. You will not find your worth in your own value, but only in the value and worth of Christ. And today, today it is a perfect worth. And he will save you. And to the unlikely church. As you look around you this morning. And you see. The carnage. Of what division can do. To the unlikely church. Hear me. God can restore and redeem. This morning, if we would surrender to him as his people. And he will take even the most unlikely of situations. And do something amazing for his glory. With every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning, as Dylan comes and leads us, worship team and others. We're going to open the altar. This altar is open for you to come and pray, spend time with the Lord. Various decisions that may be on your heart. Maybe you need to come for a specific reason this morning. Come and trust in Jesus. You want to come and pray with somebody. This altar will be open. And so I want to invite you to come. Just a few moments when they begin to sing. You step out of the place where you're standing. And you do business with God today. It's the call in our life. Be obedient to His Word. Whatever it is. Today. And so I'm going to pray, and all across the room, would you stand with me? Let's respond to the Lord today in obedience. Jesus, we pray this morning that as we come before you, as our God and our King, that you would be honored among us, that healing would begin to take place in the hearts of people, that we would see the unlikeliest of choice and the greatest of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.